Father, we thank you for this day. Father, we thank you for all the ways that you bless us. Father, as we come to the end of this series of studying the letter that James wrote centuries ago, we just thank you, Father, for the wisdom that he had. Father, we thank you for the insights that he's given us. We thank you, Father, for his willingness to confront what is going on in our lives. And Father, we thank you for preserving that letter so that we here centuries later would be able to read it as if it was written directly to us. And my prayer, Father, is that you will help us to be people who not only hear those words, but also do them, put them into practice, live them out in our lives. And Father, we pray all of this through your Son, Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen. Well, we have reached the end of our sermon series on the letter that was written by James. And I don't know about you, but I'm going to miss James. I'm going to miss him because over these last few months, I've gained a new appreciation for James. I've gained a new perspective on his letter. I think that I used to view James's letter as kind of a minor book in our Bibles. And a minor book that seemed to focus way too much on the things that we should be doing. James was kind of nagging me, I felt. And it didn't seem to spend enough time on the good biblical themes of grace and love. But now I feel very differently. Now I appreciate that James's letter is actually all about grace and it's all about love. It's written by a man who has a deep and firsthand appreciation of God's grace. So we know that James was transformed from an unbelieving and embarrassed little brother into a deeply committed slave of Jesus Christ. He was transformed by Jesus' love from someone who wanted his brother simply to shut his mouth and fade into the background, transformed into a pillar of Jesus' church, deeply committed to spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. And so as I read James's letter now, I wonder how in the past I missed the grace and love that permeates everything that James says. James writes out of love. He writes out of his love for Jesus. He writes out of his love for God. He writes out of his love for his fellow Christians. People that he loved like a father loves his own children. And like any father, James wants what is best for his children. And that's why he lovingly called them and why he lovingly calls us to transformed lives. Lives that are transformed by the grace and the love of God. And so today's sermon, the last in our series, has a title that's taken from a closing of a personal letter. I've entitled it, With Love, James. And throughout this series, we've been trying to read this letter as if it was written directly and personally to us. And we have been taking very seriously James's central idea. It's a central idea that he expresses this way. He says, don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. And since we don't want to be fools, each week we have committed ourselves to not just hearing James's words, but also doing James's words, putting his words into our actions. And so as we end this series, I think the question for all of us today is, having spent 11 Sundays hearing James's words, what happens now? I think we should ask ourselves, have James's words changed us? Have James's words transformed us? Are we any different now than we were back in April when we started this series? I want to tell you a story about a high school teacher of mine. 
Years ago, this teacher moved into town, moved into Cloudcroft, and by all appearances, he should have become my very favorite teacher. Mr. O'Toole's interests dovetailed very nicely with my own. Hunting, absolutely. Fishing, yes. Backpacking, absolutely. In fact, Mr. O'Toole had a gun collection that was more extensive than any collection I had ever seen. He had a collection of hunting knives that was second to none. He also had an amazing assortment of rods and reels and flies and lures. He had the finest boots and the finest clothes that money could buy. He had the best tents and the best backpacks. And everything that he had was in pristine condition. It was like brand new. And he didn't just have equipment. He also had knowledge. He seemed to know pretty much everything there was to know about hunting and fishing and backpacking. He should have become my favorite teacher. But he didn't. In fact, I came to think of him as kind of a foolish little man. Foolish little man because in all the time that I knew Mr. O'Toole, he never once went hunting. He never once went fishing. He never once went backpacking. And we lived right in the middle of a national forest. You see, his clothes and equipment weren't like new. They were new because they never got used. Mr. O'Toole was a collector. He wasn't a doer. And his knowledge was all second-hand knowledge because he never actually hunted and he never actually fished and he never actually went backpacking. Mr. O'Toole was a reader. He wasn't a doer. And in my mind, nothing could be more foolish than to have all the tools and never use them. Nothing could be more foolish than have all this knowledge and never put it to use. What? A waste. And James, over these last 11 Sundays, has been begging us not to be foolish, not to be like Mr. O'Toole, not to have all kinds of religious equipment and have all kinds of religious and biblical knowledge and not put it to use, not live the life that we've been equipped by God to live, because wouldn't that be such a waste? And there's a danger that we face, and it's a danger that we must fight. See, we can listen to and take very seriously all of the words that James has told us, all of his counsel, all of his advice, all of his warnings. And we can be convicted by James's words, and we can sit here and we can nod our heads in agreement to James's words, and we can be determined to change. We can have the very best intentions to be transformed in our lives, be transformed in our actions. Only to a few few weeks or a few months later, look in the mirror and see that nothing, nothing has really changed. And I want you to know I can feel it in my life. I can see it in my life. A few weeks ago, I was absolutely and deeply convicted about James's words about taming my tongue. I was absolutely determined to make needed changes about speech in my life. I had not only heard James's words, but I was doing them. I was living them. I was putting them into practice. But now, a few weeks down the road, I look in the mirror, and I can see the old verbal patterns. I can see the old verbal habits creeping back into my life. It's kind of like New Year's resolutions. You know, we all know we should eat better, and we all know we should exercise more, and we all know we should lose a little bit of weight. But January's resolutions usually turn into May's failures. 
And in May, when the spring comes and we bring out our spring clothes, we look in the mirror and we see the same eating habits. We see the same exercise habits, and unfortunately, we see the same pounds. So this morning, I want to spend the rest of our time together revisiting our resolutions from James. Calling us back to James's loving advice. I want to let James remind us, remind us of his words and our commitments that we made so that we won't just have heard James's words, that we'll live his words. See, I don't want us to look back at this series and say, what a waste. What a waste of time that was. And I don't want us to look in the mirror and have to say how foolish, how foolish we have been to hear those words but not put them into practice. Because I want us to be changed. I want us to be changed individually and I want us to be changed as a church. I want us to be transformed. I want us to be transformed individually and I want us to be transformed as a church. Changed and transformed by, James, by James's words into doers of the word. So we're going to move fairly quickly through a bunch of slides, and I want us to use this opportunity to renew our commitment to being who God, through his servant James, is calling us to be. So get your pencils ready, because we're going to move quickly. James started his letter, you'll remember, by instructing us about how we should deal with the trials that life brings our way. And we all agree that we would adopt a mature perspective about life's trials. And we agreed that the beginning point of that mature perspective is understanding and acknowledging that being a Christian doesn't exempt us or inoculate us from the kind of trials that our life will bring us. Our bones will break, our cells will mutate, our loved ones will die, people that we depend on will let us down. There will be trials. So part of our maturity is accepting the fact that there will be trials in all of our lives. We don't get a pass. And James told us that our mature perspective will allow us to actually find joy in our trials. Joy in knowing that we're not alone in our trials, that God is always with us. And not only is he with us, he's eager to give us the wisdom that we need, the wisdom that we need to get us through life's trials And all we have to do is ask. If we ask for wisdom, our God will give it to us. And our mature perspective will allow us to widen our focus, to look beyond ourselves during our trials, and see that we've been given a church, a church family that will lift our burdens, that will help us endure our trials. And a mature perspective will also give us that widened focus And we committed to opening our eyes and opening our hearts to other people around us who are going through their trials. So we'll see our brothers and sisters and so that we can give them joy by not leaving them alone in their trials. And then James shifted his focus. He shifted his focus from enduring life's trials to persevering through life's temptations. And much like the trials, James made sure that we understand that Satan is active and temptations will come. But James also told us that Satan is only responsible for the temptation. He doesn't make us sin. He doesn't cause us to sin. 
The devil doesn't make us do it. And so we as a group determined that we would accept personal responsibility for our actions. We'd accept personal responsibility for our response to those temptations that will come. We said that we wouldn't even flirt with temptations. We wouldn't even answer its call when it rang us up on our phone. We would nip it in the bud. We were determined to be people who will nip temptation in the bud. And we also committed to staying connected. Because we know it's important for us to be connected when we are dealing with temptation. So we committed to staying connected to our God. And also staying connected to his people. To not run away from God when temptation comes. Not to run away from his people and the church when temptation comes. But instead stay connected to them. Stay connected to them so we'll have God's power on our side. And so we'll have the power of his people and the power of his church on our side so that we can deal with the temptations when they do arrive. And then James asks us to look in the mirror. He asks us to take a look at our reflections in the mirror and examine whether our actions reflect God's word. We resolve that we would live lives that reflect the word of God that's been planted in our hearts. And we know, we know that our words are really a window to what's in our hearts. And so we pledge that we would be people who would be anxious to listen, quick to listen, as James put it, and hesitant to speak, slow to speak. And because we know that hearts that belong to God can't have any other lovers We committed to choosing loyalty to God over loyalty to the world. God will be our one and only. We'll have no other gods before him. He will not have to compete for our affection and our attention. We'll be loyal to our God. And then James took a turn and talked about the problems that come with favoritism and discrimination. He specifically talked about favoritism and discrimination within the church assembly. And we know that we have a tendency to favor those who are most like us or to favor those who can do the most for us. And we know that we have a a tendency to discriminate against people who are different from us or people who aren't able to do anything for us. And we determined together that we would fight that tendency. We would fight our our tendency to discriminate against the poor and our tendency to favor the rich. So we said we will be people who judge as we want to be judged. We won't judge by outward appearances, but we will look at everybody and know that they are God's image bearers. They are created in the very image of God. And we determined that we will be people who will forgive as we have been forgiven. We'll forgive generously. We'll forgive repeatedly. We'll forgive graciously we will be people who extend the same mercy to others that we want to receive from other people and we will be people who extend the same mercy to others that we want to receive from our God and so to do that we'll be people who look at others with God's eyes we'll look at other people with God's eyes so we can see others as God sees them and God sees them in the same way that he sees us Flawed children who are in need of a Savior. 
And then James called us away from dead faith to a living faith. A faith that animates our lives. A faith that animates our actions. So we determined that we'll be people who not only say the right things, the right religious things, the right pious things. We'll be people who actually do the right things. And we recognize that we've been saved by our faith in God. And we've been saved by His saving power. But we haven't been saved to do nothing. We haven't been saved to sit around and twiddle our thumbs waiting for the second coming. That's not why we've been saved. We've been saved for good works. We've been called to do good works. And James says the clearest expression of good works is taking care of those who can't take care of themselves. A clear expression of good works and the the grace that we've been given is to give to those who can't give back. And James says that's religion in its very purest form. So we committed to practicing pure religion. Practice pure religion by extending the same generosity to others that God has extended to us through Jesus Christ. And then James turned our attention to the importance of controlling our tongues. And we know, because we've seen it, we know that the wrong word spoken at the wrong time can spark an uncontrollable fire. An uncontrollable fire that can destroy people and can destroy relationships and can even destroy churches. And since we recognize the reality of that danger in our lives and in the life of our church, we devoted ourselves to practicing the golden rules of speech. And we determined that we will speak to others as we would like to be spoken to. And we also said that we were going to speak of others as we would like to be spoken of. And because we recognize that our words are an accurate reflection of who we really are, we will choose to be like Christ. We'll choose to be like Christ so our words will not only reflect who we are, our words will also reflect who he is. And then James led us in a discussion of two different kinds of wisdom. The wisdom according to the world that has its origin in Satan and the wisdom that can only come from our God. And James points out that these two wisdoms couldn't be any more dissimilar. God's wisdom is peaceful, it's pure, it's considerate, it's submissive and merciful, it's impartial and sincere. And James says worldly wisdom is none of those things. It's earthly, it's unspiritual, it's envious, it's disorderly, it's of Satan. And we chose to be people who will seek out and show in our lives true wisdom, the wisdom that comes from God. And to do that, our lives will have to be marked by humility. They'll have to be marked by self-control. They'll have to be marked by peace. See, when we look in the mirror, what we will see is humility. We'll see self-control and we will see peace. And not only will we see it when we look in the mirror, but other people, when they look at us, that's what they will see as well. Because that's the kind of people we're going to be. Our church will become a refuge, a refuge from the chaos that comes with bitter envy and with selfish ambition the things that we see so prevalent and so frequently in our world. 
And then James turned his attention to fighting and quarreling. Not just any fighting and quarreling, but fighting and quarreling within the church, within the body. And he placed the blame for such ungodly behavior on selfishness and on pride. And especially on the unwillingness to humbly submit to God and humbly submit to each other. And if you'll remember, we left that lesson determined that we will live in the humility that comes from knowing who God is. Our God is all-powerful. Our God is all-knowing. Our God is all-loving. Our God is the God who always was and always is and always will be. Our God is the great I Am. And we committed ourselves to living in the humility that comes from recognizing who we are not. And we acknowledge we are not God. God is the creator and we are the created. And so we will resist evil by submitting to our God in humility. And we'll recognize that submitting to God is actually the way that we resist Satan. See, Satan will flee when we have given complete control of our lives over to our all-powerful God. When God is truly on our side. And when we do stray, and we know we will stray, we said we'll be people who repent and we will be people who mourn over our rebellion. And then we'll allow our loving and forgiving and gracious God to lift us up again. Hold us in our arms where we can once more rejoice in his presence. Well then, rich oppressors and the poor oppressed were next on James's mind. And James very forcefully condemned the actions of the oppressors. And he promised them that their actions would be punished. They would be punished with misery. But then James looked forward. He looked forward and offered comfort to those who are oppressed those who are oppressed and still patiently endure their oppression. So, following James's counsel and James's comforting words, we determine that we will be patient when we are oppressed. And we'll be able to be patient because we know that in the end, our generous and compassionate and merciful God will fully and fairly right all wrongs. But we also came away from James's discussion of the rich and poor somewhat uneasy and we agree that we should all take another look in the mirror because we recognize that we very well might have more in common with the self-indulgent rich than we do with the oppressed poor and we committed ourselves to after taking a look in the mirror to share our riches instead of using our riches to oppress others And we said that we will generously and compassionately and mercifully share with those who have less than we do. And whether we are rich or we're poor or we're somewhere in between, we said we'll not be people who let our circumstances define us. We said we will not be our stuff. Instead, we'll be defined by our Father and we'll be defined by our Savior and we'll be defined by the Holy Spirit that lives in us. Because we're children of God, we're not children of the world. And then finally, last week, James talked to us about prayer, and he talked to us about confession, and he talked to us about restoration. And James focused on this tension between praying with absolute confidence and also praying with complete humility. 
confidence on one hand, but humility on the other. And we resolve to be people who will pray with bold confidence. We'll pray with bold confidence that our God not only hears our prayers and not only has compassion on our trying physical circumstances, but we have absolute confidence that our God is absolutely capable of granting our every request. But we'll also pray with humble submission to His will. Because we know that everything that we hope for and everything we ask for is contingent on our God's will. So we will bend our will to God's will. And we'll humbly leave room for God's will to overturn our will. And we'll do that because our God is sovereign. Our God is the king. Our God has all power. Our God has all knowledge. And our God has all control. And we saw that as concerned as James is about physical health, he's much more concerned about spiritual health. And James wants us restored spiritually. And he tells us the way to be restored spiritually is by confessing our sins. Confessing our sins to God and confessing our sins to each other. And when we do that, we can have complete confidence that our God will forgive and our God will restore us. And because we want to be a community of believers that reflects our God, we determine that we will be a community that forgives and restores each other as God has forgiven and restored each and every one of us. And we ended our time last week by declaring that we won't be content to just sit patiently and wait for our wandering brothers and sisters to come home. No, instead, we will be impatient seekers. We'll impatiently seek out our wanderers so they can be restored to their God and so they can be restored to their church. And that, all of that, is what James has called us to be. It's what he's called us to do. Not to be like Mr. O'Toole, with all kinds of knowledge but no action. Not to do like Mr. O'Toole, to have all kinds of equipment that's never used. Not to be like Mr. O'Toole who was just fooling himself, but he wasn't fooling anybody else. No, instead we're committed to being people who don't just listen to God's word, but actually do what it says. And then we won't be fooling ourselves. Because we will be who we say we are. We will be true disciples Of Jesus Christ. So I want to end this morning with a plea. And my plea is this let's stop fooling ourselves. Let's stop fooling ourselves by thinking that we can be doers of God's word all by ourselves. Thinking that we can be doers of God's word all on our own. Let's consider this question. During this study of James, during this 11 weeks that we've spent in James, what have you resolved to do? What have you committed yourself to do that you're really finding it difficult to actually do? Or maybe to keep on doing? And I'm going to ask you to do something that I'm not very good at all at doing. I'm going to ask you to ask for help. 
I'm going to ask you to ask for prayers. I'm going to ask you to ask for partners, brothers and sisters to walk along beside you. I'm going to ask you to ask for accountability. See, let's not be people who even try to keep our resolutions on our own. Because that would be foolish. And James' words will have just been a waste, a waste of time. So ask for help. You can do that in so many ways. I'm sure I can't even mention all of them. One of the ways that you can do it, we're going to stand up and sing a song. You could walk to the front of this church and you can say, I'm trying to be what James has called me to be and I need help. And we as a community, if we are who we say we are, we will give you that help. Or during the singing of the song, you can walk to the back and in room 104, a couple of our elders are there and they would love to listen to you say, I need help. And they stand ready to help. You can take one of those green cars that's in the rack in front of you. You can fill out the area that you need help in. You can drop it in one of the boxes and I'll call you. I'll call you on Monday and to talk to you about how we can help. Or you can simply turn to one of your beloved and trusted brothers and sisters. When we're finished here, you can turn to them and just say, I need help. And I wouldn't be surprised if you'll find out that they need help too. And we can help each other. So won't you please ask for help while we stand and sing. Sing.